welcome mamas. Welcome back to another episode of the Working Mama podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have with me Dr. Sarah Gleason, who is a medical practitioner, but she's also come up with this amazing app to help all parents uh, across the world. So we'll get into that a little bit shortly. But a little bit of background on Sarah. She grew up on a farm near Moree in New South Wales, and she's always had a love of rural and regional communities. While she was at school, Sarah dreamed of becoming a vet, but it was a careers advisor who suggested that medicine might be more rewarding career for her. After a last minute change of heart, she went on to study medicine at the University of Adelaide. She remembers spending summers in rural clinical schools and placements in regional and remote communities, and she was in her element. Before she graduated, Sarah knew that rural medicine was for her, and she loved the challenge and opportunity to make a meaningful contribution into a small community. Cannot wait to get the conversation started. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me, Karina. It's really exciting. This is my first ever podcast. So I feel like a, a proper grown up, maybe. Oh, wow. <laughs> this will be the first of many, I'm sure. Oh, hopefully. It's lovely. No, it's really exciting. So thank you for having me. My pleasure. And we talk about rural. Whereabouts are you based now? So I'm based in Gundawindi. So that's on the Queensland, New South Wales border. It's about 400 k's uh, southwest of Brisbane. Yep. It's a great little town, about 6,000 people. Oh, wow. And what kind of medicine do you practice? So officially the new term now is rural generalist, which means I'm a bit of a jack of all trades and my sort of subspecialty is in obstetrics. So um, I wear quite a few hats three days a week. I'm working in general practice. One of those days is in outreach um, in an Indigenous health clinic just south of Gundawindi. And I also provide an on-call obstetric service one week in three to the hospital. Um, so delivering babies, doing cesarean sections, and one day a month working in the emergency department uh, as a in the shift work sort of since then, and also providing some second on-call senior cover for emergency in the hospital. So if it all goes a bit pear-shaped and they need extra sets of hands, um, then they give me a call for that. So that's sort of my hat that I wear um, currently. Wow. That's pretty amazing. And also you've got three boys as well. Yeah, I've got three little boys. Um, They're nearly four, just five and nearly seven. So I've got two of them home today bribed nicely um, (laughs) watching a movie Um, and one, one at school in year one. So, yeah, we had a few crazy years there. I think I had like four and a half years straight where I was pregnant or breastfeeding and working part-time and it was a bit crazy, but we're out of the trenches now. Yeah, you've come out to the other side. (laughs) I can see the light. (laughs) So you can say to many parents out there, there is a light. There definitely is. And there was a long time there we thought, what have we done? This is a bit crazy because it was a planned thing and we were very blessed to be able to be able to follow through on that plan. Um, but now that we've, the baby is nearly four, um, things are starting to get much easier. Oh, very good. And so what's been your career pathway to where you are today? So I studied at the University of Adelaide, um, which is a great spot and I loved it down there. And like you'd said in the bio, I'd done a few um, remote placements and rural placements. Did my internship at Toowoomba Hospital which was a big jump for me too. I was sort of wanted to come a bit closer to home. Um, Adelaide was obviously a really long way away and 
Chumbu is great. It was it's a really good um, breeding ground, I suppose, for rural doctors. They're very supportive and and they they provide a lot of outreach to a lot of rural uh, hospitals in Queensland. So I had a year there and then a year of lots of actual rural um, relieving placements. So in Queensland, they send quite junior doctors out to the bush um, for sort of five to ten weeks at a time to sort of cover roster gaps and sometimes you might actually be the only doctor in town which can be um terrifying and it really is a little bit of trial by fire and I've had I had a few moments there where you know your heart rate's higher than the patients probably (laughs) but um the the flip is that you get a very quick look and an in-depth look at whether you'd like to do that down the track and I, I just relished that. I loved it, even the times where I was really pushed professionally um, and a bit out of my depth or very much out of my depth because there's also lots of support as well. So that that gave me a great insight into what I could be doing down the track. And um, then I had some time here in Gundawindi actually relieving my my boyfriend at the time. He's now my husband was working in Moree and I swung a bit of a deal to be able to come to Gundawindi, which was only about an hour and an hour away versus three hours away for for 10 weeks. And it's funny how things work out because I had a great time here in Gundawindi. I got to meet the team. I realised that it was a very progressive team. The way that the medical service in the town was run was just excellent and very sustainable. And, yeah, I stayed in touch with the, with the partners here and went off and did my obstetric training, finished my GP training and came back to Gundawindi in 2011. So I've been here for nearly nine years and... Then I um, bought into the partnership here at the at our medical centre about two years ago now, as well. So, and I've got a job with UQ Point One as an academic clinician, so providing some mentorship and teaching to the UQ Rural Clinical School students, and they come out twice a year, about twelve of them, and we we put on a whole week of teaching for them. So, really hands-on teaching and trying to immerse them a little bit in in rural medicine and, and rural communities as well, because a lot of times they haven't actually been out sort of west of Brisbane ever. Yeah, you could imagine that you'd get some people that are, you know, very much city slickers and been thrown into it, that I guess in the city you're very much sometimes probably put into those silos, where in the rural medicine you've got to be, as you say, the, the generalist, the jack of all trades. Yeah, and it's and it's it's great fun, but it can be a little bit scary sometimes. But a lot of the times you realise that with with good phone advice and support, that you can do a lot of things as well. You just we just sort of need to put my big girl pants on and, and get into it. Yeah, and you've you've done all the training. You've got to. It's probably that one hundred and one of real self belief of yes, I can do this. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it to go well, and, and also going well. There's no one else that can do it, so you just got to get into it and really yeah. do your best. And I think the other thing which is, which makes our job easier is that our, our patients are just wonderful and they're accommodating and they're understanding and they realise that you're, you know, not a neurosurgeon or an orthopaedic surgeon or all of these things and but that you're the best that they've got and that they, they trust us and that if we can do stuff, we do it. And if we can't, we, we outsource it and they have an incredible amount of, of trust in us, which is um, very humbling. Oh, that must be so rewarding, such a good career. And how do you go in working 
non-traditional nine to five hours between yourself and, and managing three boys and multiple different roles and family career, but also then still getting some time for you. How do you juggle it all? I always amazes me, particularly around shift workers. And I know that I take, I look at my obstetrician and she's, she does these amazing hours. I'm like, and then now she's pregnant with her third. I'm like, how do you do this? Like you doctors are amazing. I, I was only saying to my husband, I think, I think it's a little bit of that frog in the hot water thing though. If someone said to me 10 years ago, what, everything that I would be doing right now, I would say, that's insane. Why would you sign up for all of that at the yeah. same time? But you, <laughs> but you do evolve and you become a lot more efficient than you were pre-kids, I think. And you get used to running on less sleep. So on an... Yeah, the on-call work is the challenging part for me because I rely enormously on the support from my husband, Tim, to just pick up things if I have to bolt. Um, and that might be sometimes in the middle of dinner. That might be I'm getting dinner ready and I have to bolt. It might be midnight and I don't get back until five in the morning and have to try and get a few hours sleep before I'm supposed to get up and just go back to a normal work day. Uh, sometimes it might be half the weekend that I'm gone as well. So having a supportive partner or husband has, has been the, the cornerstone really of being able to manage. He doesn't have a job that is on call and that would, that's, I think, next level in really challenging if you've got two, two parents or carers that do shift work. It's really, really challenging or on-call work. So the other thing, obviously, is having really reliable childcare um, and that's that's a constant challenge. And I feel like this is the first year that I haven't used a substantial amount of brain time and energy trying to sort out the best solution for us in any given year. And, and every single year since I've had my first baby, we've had a different solution and it was increasingly hard to manage that while I was trying to do on-call work and had smaller babies that were still breastfed and, that was really challenging. And I remember when I first went back to work part-time, I had often across a fortnight, four different people looking after my little fella at home because I didn't yet feel comfortable putting him in traditional daycare. And just the amount of time you spend on the phone trying to figure out who's coming, confirming that someone's coming, have I paid that person? It was pretty shambly, but it, it meant that I could do what I needed to do I lived quite close to the hospital, so it meant that they could bring my babies down in a pram to me to be breastfed if they needed to be, or I could race home and do it. I've taken my kids in there with me and just dropped them on the reception staff in the ward or set up a port-a-cot in theatre <laughs> before as well and breastfed my, oh, he must have been six-month-old then and tried to, thought, oh, this would be great. It's time for his sleep. I was going into a sister season with one of my colleagues and I wasn't even back at work, but there was no one else in town. So I was like, sure, we all help each other out. And I fed him. I thought, right, I'll put you down. This will be perfect. You're ready for a sleep. And I had it all set up. Of course, he didn't go to sleep. I could hear him in there crying. We just started. Anyway, and then, he, and then I, the crying stopped. I was like, oh, great. He's falling asleep. And I walked out to find him when the case was finished. He wasn't even in there. One of our lovely nurses had picked him up and taken him somewhere else and, <laughs> you know, patted him off to sleep somewhere else. So having a really flexible workplace has been the other thing that's made an immense difference and also having some trailblazers go before me. So having some um, very experienced female generalists who worked part-time, had three or four children 
And so they really set the tone and the expectation for the rest of the town about how things would roll. And so that made it very easy for me to roll into that model. And so no one batted an eyelid if I rolled in with two or three kids at no notice uh, and plonked them in a room somewhere and had to run off and do something. I did it only a week ago. I parked them all in a room somewhere. And they're big enough now that they'll they'll watch stuff. But once I did have one of them pop in after a baby had been born and I, before I even knew it and he's standing there looking over my shoulder, I said, oh, mate, we're going to get out of here. Which is part of the um, welcoming committee. Part of the welcoming committee. So, yeah, look, it's it's a challenge. I You obviously have to be very organised. I was listening to the podcast that you did with her first name's Escape Me, the one who's very organised and is the oh, Tash Guthrie, the yep. coach. Yes, Tash Guthrie, that's the one. And thinking, oh, that's good. Actually, you know, there's, I think there's some great tips in that. And again, your system evolves. I've got Google calendars and everything goes on Google calendar. Um, and I share that with my husband and we usually have a chat at the start of the week. What's on this week and what am I doing and what meetings do I have? And so communication obviously is a lot of it. Um, and some good flexible childcare, I think, are the things. And fa- like we, we don't have family living in town, but certainly they've been very accommodating if we need to go, can you take the boys for school holidays for a week? They're amazing and we'll do that. So that makes a huge difference. We're very blessed like that. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you've evolved over time about mm. how it works. But also it sounds like you've also got such a progressive both workplace but also tribe and town that you live in um, Mm. that has really paved the way. And I think that's really important for a lot of people that do listen that it is about those little incremental changes that you might be going through a bit of a tough time now but there might be people that come in behind you that you're actually paving the way to make it a little bit easier as well. Oh, absolutely, 100%. And we've got, so since, you know, We've obviously got other junior female staff now at our practice who are having babies and that it's just the norm to get flexible hours and that you have a pumping break and that's just not, that's just a given. It's just, you know, we expect that those things will be needed and there's no hassles and we have a great tea room at work that there's, um, it's a very family friendly practice. So there's people's kids in there all the time, all of our staff in there, you know, feasting in our tea room and watching some TV, waiting for one parent to finish or another one to come and get them. So you're right. And I think, I think we probably take that for granted a little, but yes, certainly those incremental changes. Cause I imagine 10 years ago or 15 years ago when my colleagues were doing it, that it wouldn't have been such an easy, an easy road then. Yeah, no, it's definitely something I know that a lot of people would listening to this would be going, oh, that sounds amazing. What a great workplace. And I think also it demystifies like that medical practitioner world as well, because a lot of people do say, oh, you know, doctors, it's almost like, you know, children are to be seen and not heard. Um, Mm. You hear of that sometimes in the city, but it's great also to hear that those family friendly practices are actually then happening in the country. Um, it's probably then an attraction tool as well for attracting some of those better doctors into the, into the country as well for those family-friendly activities that can happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's part of what I love about our place is that if we have a have a catch-up with things that all everybody's kids are all out there running around together and it's, it's, it's very much that village takes a village and people will go and do things for each other. It doesn't matter whether which part of what what role you have at our practice that everyone really is in it together because I think that small town mentality and I mean that in a positive way of people looking after each other and that 
that also applies at the hospital. People, people will just do the most beautiful things. You know, if you're in there all day and you haven't eaten much, the people, some of the ambulance drivers have driven out to Macca's for me to grab me some something to eat at two o'clock in the morning because <laughs> I'm starting to get a bit hangry. <laughs> You're like, yep, Sarah needs some Macids. We're going now. Oh, yeah. And now every, everybody in town knows that I need to be eating all the time. So it's pretty good. Everyone's keeping an eye out for me. Yeah. And if you see Sarah like I do at the moment, she's very lean and trim. So, yes, I don't know where that food goes. Oh, I don't know either. But it's good genetics, not good planning. Yeah. <laughs> so getting on to the medical questions now, I know that a lot of people told me when I first was putting my son into childcare to expect the first 12 months to be in and out of doctor's offices and to have a lot of sick days um, because my child will be sick all the time. He was sick a little bit, probably not as much as I know that other kids were. And often I'm told, all right, it's good. And that first 12 months, they'll build up immunity. Is that really a thing or if it's just an old wives tale yeah. making us all feel better. No, 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 that really is that really is a thing. And it's mostly because so every time we're exposed to a new bug that your body then goes, oh hello, this is a new bug. And then it can start to recognize that and and put that in its memory essentially. So that next time it comes, um, you might not get quite as sick from that bug. It doesn't mean you won't catch it at all. It's not the same as so for most of those viruses you that run around the daycares like rhinovirus and another one's called RSV. They usually won't stop you getting it in future years, but you may get a milder version of it. There's things that you obviously do get immune to usually once you catch it, like chickenpox, which does a run every now and then, even though children are immunised. So, yes, certainly that first winter for children in daycare is often a shocker. And then it's also a shocker for the parents because then their lovely little carrier monkey comes home and gives it to them as well. And I know that we seem to maybe every second year have a really terrible year um, that it just bowls all of us, you know, for, for six or eight weeks, just rolling. One person gets sick and the next one gets sick. And I always wonder, like, surely it'd be better if we just all got absolutely nailed with this across one week. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be just nice. Again. We're all KO'd for one that'd week. Be- Oh, absolutely. Um, rather than the six week drag out. So yes, it is true. It's, um, it's sort of a means to an end though. You're not, you don't really want them to get sick, but you know, it's going to happen. And certainly they're those years too, where the kids are, uh, they don't have as great hand hygiene. They don't have as great awareness of themselves and others. They're far more likely to sneeze and cough just in your eyeball than into their elbow. And I'm certainly just seeing now, just as my boys are starting to get that little bit bigger, that they're not getting as sick or as often this sort of common coldy thing. And it doesn't, and they're not as miserable with it either. So the the eight month old who's got a head cold is is really hard work versus the three and a half year old who, you know, can be snuggled up on the couch watching a bit of telly with their bear. They don't need to be carried around all day. So yes. <laughs> it does, it does get easier uh, and there's no other way around it really, because if you don't, if they don't have some sort of, you know, sustained contact with lots of other small children when they're small, that's just going to happen later. It almost delays it. School. It really does. So um, it's sort of a necessary evil, I suppose. No, evil's the right word, but, um, but yes, it's certainly true. And I just tell people, I just tell people the same, just hunker down for that first, for that first winter in daycare. 
Yeah, just one of those things. It's just like going back to work, you got to do it. So, yeah. And we're recording this episode mid-July in the depths of the traditional cold and flu season, but we're also in the middle of a COVID-19 pandemic in Melbourne. We're back into ISO. And I know that many parents used to play Russian roulette on sending their child to childcare or school due to work demands. And I know that I've, I've done this a number of times, but just like my son might have a bit of a cold or a bit of a cough. Generally, he's okay. But in the world of COVID-19, all this is taken out of our hands. How much in normal times, so I say normal um, in inverted commas, post-COVID-19, can we differentiate when we, how can we differentiate when we can keep our kids at home and when we should send them to um, childcare? Like what's that, what are some of those signs, one of those things that we can say, yep, we should keep them at home or no, nah, they've got a temperature. How do we know? Um, and if you asked me this 12 months ago, I would have given a slightly different answer because COVID really has changed, changed the way we're going to do things now. And I think we'll change the way we do things forever. The general rule, um, and I recently did a, a questionnaire a Q&A thing with stay-at-home mums on this as well. So there's another on their Insta Live if, you, if, if you're, any of your listeners want to listen specifically about this in a bit more detail. The general rule is certainly if they're unwell, if they look unwell or if they have a fever, then you shouldn't be sending them. If you think you need, if you've been giving your kid paracetamol or ibuprofen, then that's not, they shouldn't be going to daycare, I think is the general rule. And that was pre-COVID, I would have said that. All the daycares will know the kids that have been loaded up with Panadol and Nurofen before they've been sent because they all fall apart at two o'clock yeah. <laughs> when it all wears off. So don't think they don't know. They know exactly. Oh, oh, really? Oh, they were fine this morning. Like They're like, yeah, whatever. So the rules are obviously changing now. And state by state, they're still a little bit different in terms of how vigilant each centres are going to be. There's a number of viruses which can make kids just have a runny nose and not be unwell. And the tricky bit is that some children will still get sicker than others. So I think if your child has a bad cough, if they've really got a filthy snotty nose and you, you are just wiping it all day, uh, I think a few boogers um, is not a reason not to send your child to daycare. Each daycare is going to have their own parameters as well. And I think that this is where it's going to get really quite challenging for parents is that there's probably uh, not as much overarching governance about this criteria. and from a parental point of view, it'd be much easier for us if there was really consistent stuff. So there's obviously some very set stuff for daycare about which things that mean that your child is excluded, like if they have diarrhoea or if they have hand, foot and mouth, or if you're worried they have measles or a highly infectious thing. At the moment, and especially in Melbourne, I suspect that no child with a cough is going to be admitted to any childcare. Um, the tricky thing is um, for kids who have asthma. So and I've learnt this firsthand. So my eldest boy has got asthma and we the weather turned really cold up here the last two days. And out of nowhere, he just had the most horrendous barking cough. That sounds terrible, but he was quite well and picked up with some Ventolin and all the other rest of the medications. Now, ordinarily, if someone didn't know that he had asthma, they would have said he shouldn't be here. But the trigger for his asthma was the cold air, not an illness. Yeah a new illness so it, it gets really challenging and I think as a general overarching rule that if in doubt keep them home is a really safe rule if you can and I realize that that's very challenging now in Melbourne if you're in isolation you're obviously working from home but it's very hard to work from home with small people as I have discovered 
So I think that as a safe rule is if in doubt, keep them home. If they need paracetamol or ibuprofen, then they should not be going to daycare unless the paracetamol is because they broke their arm and they're in a cast and they can go back and do their normal thing now. And if they've got a really runny nose, then I think, you know, I think you have to put the hat on and go, if I was running the daycare and my kids showed up, would I be like, what are they doing? Why are they here? I'm going to send them home. And I think that concept of karma a little bit too of going, come on, we've all got to try and do the right thing because then if someone else sends their kids sick, then my kid's going to get sick and then I'm going to get sick too. Yeah. So I think it's really domino effect. So I think it's really going to change the landscape and really make people more mindful of whether they send their kids or not. And I think there's going to be less Russian roulette, like you said. Um, and the, the challenging bit is then though, I've, I've certainly found going, watch, well, my kids are a little bit sick, but they're not terribly sick, but they shouldn't go to daycare. Now I can't ask any of my friends to look after them because they've got small children and I don't want them to get sick. And do I ask one of my elderly relatives? Well, I don't really want them to get sick either. So it gets, I, I think that's certainly been um, some of the most challenging things I've had to try and navigate of going, well, what do I do now? Things are a little bit easier for me now because I can do telehealth from home. So I can do video consulting from home, whereas six months ago, we really weren't allowed to. So six months ago, it was very tricky. Like, do I cancel 30 appointments for people knowing that that really screws my next two weeks trying to catch those people up? So I really, I've, I've been there. I've been in the trenches of sick kids and trying to figure out what to do and whether you send them or not. And, and it's hard. It's really challenging. We yeah. realise that. And I think if you're not sure is get some advice as well. Like if you've got your child assessed by a GP and they said, no, look, I do think they're fine. Then you can certainly be more confident about making that decision and, and explaining that to your childcare provider. But knowing that if they get unwell while they're there, then you're going to have to go and call them yeah. out. Is there a temperature barometer? So over a certain like a threshold. Yeah. Uh, so certainly we would say like if they've got a temp over 37.5 is usually sort of starting to get a bit of a temperature and officially sort of over 38 is a fever. Um, I think, I think if you're getting, it's also that if you're getting to the point of needing to check a temperature, your guts you're, already you're probably should, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, why do I, if you're pulling the thermometer out, you're like, Hmm, if this is my decider. So I think, yeah, you need to treat the child. I think that's, you know, judge it on the child. But sometimes kids can look quite well and have a temp of 38 and then four hours after they get to daycare, they'll, they'll fall to pieces. So I think I would use that as your secondary or, you know, tertiary decision-making thing. And only if they're looking perfectly well, but you think, are you feeling a bit hot? Yeah. That would probably be the only time yeah. that I would use that as a decision-making tool for sending them to daycare. No, good to know. Good to know. And also now it's hard to know what medicine to give to children for all the different symptoms. I've sometimes I've given, I know in my personal experience, I've given Panadol during the day and then Nurofen at night. And I've, I've sort of, I know I've also gone to the chemist going, what else can I give my child? And they're like, look, that's all you got until they're six. But how do we know what medicine um, to give um, just for even those common colds? And also, are there some things that we really should be watching out for about administering medicine to children? So I think the, the first thing is it's important to, to get an understanding of what both of those medicines can do. So paracetamol and the sort of brands of Panadol or Dimadon. So it is, it's primarily, its main two actions are in pain relief and in fever relief. So... And so they can be quite useful for any cough and cold symptoms. 
And then when you look at ibuprofen, which other brand name is Nurofen, so it's an anti-inflammatory medicine, which also has a fever relief sort of component. So they work in different ways. They work in completely different ways and can be safely given together as well. And this confuses people because they think, oh, am I overdosing my kid? And um, your experience is, is shared by many parents, Karina, of going, well, do I alternate them? Do I give one at this time? Do I just give Nurofen for teething, but Panadol for a cold? There's no hard and fast rules. I think that if your child is mildly unwell, I would try using one of those agents initially. And if that's not getting you any symptom relief, then I'd trial a second one. So say you've given your little two-year-old some ibuprofen at eight o'clock in the morning and two hours later, he's no, not looking any better, then I'd say, look, try some paracetamol now. So you can run them alternating so every couple of hours sometimes that can get a bit tricky to to remember and I think it's absolutely crucial to record what you've given and when especially when you've got more than one child unwell it gets really really hard to remember when you're a bit sleep deprived and I've had years of having lists on benches that have uh, that I've been able to hand to somebody else alternatively if it's day two and you know that your little possum is is quite miserable is that rather than uh, waiting you can give both at the same time so but a lot of parents will find that the alternating pattern probably gets them better cover across a day, but does use up a bit more mental energy because you need to remember when those doses could be due. The things to bear in mind is that it's really important to know your child's weight because those calculations around the dose are weight-based. Each uh, On the back of each of those bottles, there'll be a weight-based range for the dosage. And so that's important to stick to that and not to be like, oh, it says four mils, so five mils must be better. That's really important not to do that and to stick with those doses because um, with paracetamol especially, there is a real risk of accidental overdose and it's very easy to do either by giving a little bit too much or too often or both of those things um, or having two, two carers that might have inadvertently, you know, someone's given them some at midnight and then the other parents got up at two o'clock in the morning and also jammed them for a normal dose or just giving them the dose for the four-year-old, not the two-year-old. Mm. So it's really, really, really easy to do. Uh, and um, my sister and I had both done that as clinicians and parents and when we were really tired. So paracetamol, it's important that it's only four times a day, okay? And what now, the so they talk about being... Sorry, what was just quickly, what are the effects if you do go over? Like you, you Yeah, so if you do go... Yeah. With the paracetamol, so it can cause liver damage. So it's it's seen as a very benign substance because we can buy it over the counter and we, we give it very willy-nilly, really, myself included, to, to our kids. Um, but too much for a couple of days in a row, which is really easy to do, can actually cause um, severe um, irreversible liver damage in some kids if it's not detected. So... Um, when my sister and I, when we went on this journey of, of researching some stuff for this, for the app that we're building, is that we realised that paracetamol was a leading cause of liver failure in children in developed countries, which we were just blown away by, which is also terrifying that if we as GPs and emergency nurses didn't know that, that statistic, then hardly anybody else is going to be aware of that. And, and, People really think it's a very benign substance. You can buy it over the counter. You can buy it at a service station. Um, but it, it, can cause, uh, it can cause a lot of harm, and it does cause a lot of harm in Australia and around the world every year for either accidental or intentional overdose. So um, 
it is very important, and I think to record what you've given, um, how much and what time and what you actually gave. I think that's that's the most important safety thing. The second thing um, is that it's important to be aware that a lot of the brands, so um, is that there's different strengths. And this is, this is where it actually gets a bit dangerous. So for the Panadol brand, there's three or four different strengths you can actually buy. Oh, just to make it even more confusing for parents. Just to make it more confusing. So um, I'm, I've always been a staunch, like, try and prescribe generically. But when I realised this, and I also realised that that Dimadon brand tastes a lot better and my kids were far more likely to actually accept it, they've just got a single strength. So I really talk to, talk to families about picking a single brand and a single strength. So have a single brand and single strength of paracetamol in your house whatever brand you like, but just pick the same brand and the same strength and the same for ibuprofen so that you know every time you pull it out, it doesn't matter whether you're doing the one-year-old, the four-year-old, the eight-year-old, you still just go off the back and it'll be the same amount rather than going, I'm giving 100 milligrams per mil, which is a really strong infant drops mm. because if you give the seven mils of that, you've given them a really big dose. And that's how it's really easy to overdose your, overdose your kids, unfortunately. So, yeah, so we're really strong advocates for single brand, single strength. Yeah, because actually when I think about it now, yeah, the, the infant Panadol is like in a very um, small syringe, very mm-hmm. tiny. Yep. But then you go up to yep. the next one, I think it's like between one and five or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's in a different syringe, different bottle. Yeah, and it's completely different yep. amounts. I think even my mum, a little while ago, she had the infant one and she was looking after my son and she said, oh, how much do I give? I was like, well, you know, a couple of mil. And she's like, but then the bottle says something different. But I was telling her one thing, but then she had, mm. yeah, a very different bottle. And so, yeah, yeah potentially then could have then obviously had dire um, implications. Yeah, so I think the, the the best is just to always go on what's on the back of the bottle that you're using. Um, but, yeah, so the, the infant drops are four times as strong as the 2- to 12-year-old Panadol formulation. That's just crazy. It is. And I think um, and long-term we would love to really strongly advocate for some of these brands to, to just from a safety point of view to all be in single strength. Mm. And what are the um, – so you talk about the different brands, but – What's in the percentage of kids at the moment? Do you have any stats around um, kids that get overdosed around um, Panadol in this sense? It's tricky to pick about the ones that actually do. We know that um, last year, so 2019, there was about 13,000 calls to New South Wales poisons about paracetamol. So that's probably our best thousand, yeah. So that doesn't mean that every single – that doesn't mean every single one of those kids got too much. And it's, it's actually really tricky to, to dive down into their data, which we've tried to do. But we know that that's, that's the number of parents who were worried. There's probably a lot who didn't even know that they should have been worried. They're the ones we're most worried about, that we worry. Yeah. Um, the people who don't know that it could be a problem. Um, and some of those obviously might be for older people, um, but there's a lot of calls to poisons every year, and that's just for the New South Wales branch. I was about to say that's only New South Wales. I know I've had a friend of mine. She's called because she's accidentally given. She's in the bath, sleep deprived, gave the you know the Panadol to the two year old instead of the four year old, and she's like, "Oh no, I've I've hurt my child," and and called in a mad yeah. panic, and yeah, it's so easy to do. We're, we're like we're only human, and I think this is why some of those things can provide a little safety net. So having 
yeah, single brand, single strength, and only using a syringe. So not using a spoon or cups because they're incredibly unreliable in terms of measuring the amount. Um, so having and trying to have a single uh, brand of syringe even that you use. So it's just really consistent. So you go into the hospitals, there's only ever one strength mm. of Panadol that you can have. Um, there's only one brand of syringes. So they're really trying to reduce that user error and keep it really safe. And I think we've just got to try and get that message out to families that you can do that very easily at home and add in a few layers there that will reduce the chance of you giving your kids too much or giving it too often. Yeah. And what about ibuprofen? Does that carry the same risks? So it's not as bad. You can get some tummy upset from that and you need to have it over a certain number of days. Um, You can also get some kidney upset from ibuprofen as well. Um, So that's why we've included it as part of our safety-based calculations. Um, It's probably more likely for adults to end up taking too much of that too often, um, but we can manage that as well um, with our calculations there. So it can upset the lining of your tummy, um, especially for adults. So, you know, we talk about giving it um, with a meal ideally. It's tricky when your kids aren't eating much. It's not a big, it's not as big a problem for children, um, because they're only having small little volumes and it is that syrup based anyway. So that gets a little bit more easily digested. Yeah. Very good. So you've alluded to the app um, that you've been talking about. Do you want to tell us about how you've come about this app development um, and the journey that you've been on? So it's my sister's idea. I can't claim that it's her fabulous idea. She's an emergency nurse and she's got two little boys. And when her second boy was quite young, she had a moment like your friend of sleep deprivation and newborn and giving medicine. And then I think her husband did some as well. And she's like, oh my goodness, there just has to be a better way than this. And she did a fair bit of research and there was lots of apps on the market that are a medication tracker, but none that let two parents view what's going on in real time so she hit me up with the idea and it really was my year of saying no I had enough balls in the air and I was being like great this is 2019 is my year of saying no and not taking on any more projects and I'm just about to finish a huge renovation and garden redo five acres it was just a bit ridiculous anyway and she told me this idea and I thought oh that's a cracker that's a really good idea and so that was a journey that started in January 2019 And so we've been working really hard uh, with a developer in Melbourne and in conjunction with Poisons New South Wales to get some advice from them, from their pharmacists and toxicologists about some special calculations in the back end of our app. And the crux of it is that it's a cloud-based app that allows two parents or users to accurately record when they've given their kids medications and securely share that as well in real time around the dosage and the timing. So it's a it's a lovely fancy way of replacing that note on the bench, but it'll let you send a text message to your other half to say, I've given so-and-so this, or you don't even need to do that. They can just log on and see what you've given without phone calls in the middle of the night. And especially for Liz and I, if I had to get up and go, that I wouldn't have to wake my husband to say, I gave Patty some Panadol at one o'clock, like don't give him any more until seven o'clock. So with the primary aim of that stuff to reduce that accidental overdose and also with the features of having all the regular medications that children take. So we know there's lots of families who have kids who might have regular inhalers for asthma, epilepsy medicine, ADHD medicine, swag of other things. 
and that compliance is really tricky and I'm the first to put my hand up to say I find it really hard to remember on a busy morning when we're trying to get three kids and up and out the door to remember to give every you know give people their puffers or if we're on antibiotics for a week to try and remember all those doses and I 14 alarms set in my phone for all the different things I was supposed to be doing so we just wanted a better solution for that and the other thing we did quite a bit of market research we did about research to just over 500 mums last year and interestingly the thing that they struggled with most was making sure they had enough medicine at home now Liz and I chuckled because we've we've got like not much short of a pharmacy in our cupboards because (laughs) of our our jobs so we thought that we're like really but it turns out that, yes, for the, for the non-clinician, that is a very real challenge. And so we've built in a medication tracker sort of inventory in there so you can very quickly just jump on and see how much you've got left of any of those things. And you'll get some reminders if you're getting down to 50 and 25% of that. Or if you're downtown, you can check and go, do I need to buy? Yes, because that's always single brand, like, single strength. Oh no! Do I have any? It's like milk, isn't it? You're like, do I yes. have milk? Do I need to buy more milk? Yes. And then you suddenly got eight liters. Yes. So... And I think at, at its core, when we're looking at what we're really trying to do is to give parents peace of mind when they need it most so that they're not using any more brain cells. Um, we're all tired and busy enough and that they'll let them really confidently manage that. And it gives them a, an, a platform to be able to take to their doctor or nurse or emergency department to say, well, this is what I've been giving. This is when I gave it. The problem that Liz discovered is that when, when people were bringing their children to emergency who were unwell, is because that was obviously a stressful process. They couldn't accurately remember when they'd last given their child that medication, which meant that actually affected how safely the the hospital system could administer any of those medicines because they didn't want to be overdosing yeah. the child as well. So, so that's sort of the rough crux of it. And we're sort of a week off now it being ready for testing. It's been, it's taken us quite a while. And as first time app developers working with a development group in Melbourne, it's been a steep learning curve, let me say. But yeah, so hopefully we're looking to launch in four to six weeks time, which is really exciting. No, that's fantastic. Cause I think it's something that when you think about it as new mums, we record when we're breastfeeding and everything that mm. the baby does for that, you know, first six, 12 months. Um, and this is really that next phase about mm. that recording and that safety measures for something that's so important. I know that you know, every parent has gone, when did I last give a medicine? And in your head, okay, Panadol is between four and six hours. Ibuprofen, mm. six and eight hours. What can I give and when? I know. Yeah. And it's, you can't yeah, constantly so calculating in your head. It is. So, and so it does it for you. So it'll say when you gave it and when you can give the next dose straight there. Uh, and if you've given too much accidentally, we want people to be honest with what they've given and put it in this app. It'll, it, we've got a reminder that it'll pop up. And if you have given too much, It'll catch you then early and give you some advice to actually, with a phone number that you can call poisons. We don't want people to be scared about doing that because that means then if they change what they do in that next 24 hours, then their child will be okay. Yeah. So most children can, can, can definitely cope with getting 24 hours of a bit too much, but they can't cope with 48 hours of too much and they definitely can't cope with 72 hours of too much. Yeah. So, yeah, we're really hoping to reduce the number of calls for poisons and, and to reduce those number of, of actual accidental overdoses that have caused harm to the kids. Yeah, actually, just quickly as well, if you thought that your child might be accidentally overdosing, what were some mm-hmm. of those signs? So just in case you go, oh, look, these are well, some... Well, no, and this, is really, and this is really tricky is that they, obviously, they, they don't um, obviously become unwell until they're really quite unwell, and this is mm-hmm. the tricky bit. Oh. So I think if you're not... Sh- and this is, and this is how, it, how it happens quite easily... So if you're not sure, then 
our advice would be to to chat to your GP or to ring poisons. Yeah, um, that's the that's the safest way to manage that. Poisons are open twenty four seven. Really experienced staff there, and this is what they do. They all day, every day, they chat to families and worried people about what they've consumed or maybe consumed. I'm not sure if you've ever called them. I called them once when my boys nibbled on a bit of rat bait at my in-laws place, which terrified. I was heavily pregnant with, I think number three. And I was just, oh, it was just terrible anyway. And they were so nice. They said, oh, look how much, I, said, I don't know. It was a bit on their lips. And I said, look, you need, they need to like eat a cup full of it for it to be bad. And I said, oh, okay. There's no, and he said, no yeah. one ever does that because it tastes so bad. I'm like, oh, okay. And they were so kind and all, so they're, they're very, very good. And I think I'd really encourage people just if they're not sure to ring to ring and ask and to get some advice. Fantastic. So where can people find out more about you and the app? Um, and then if they want to be part of the big test group or anything like that, because I'm sure there'll be many people that will be very keen to get involved with this, particularly being the middle of winter as what we are now. Um, so how can they get on board with, with Family HQ and yourself? So if they want to read a little bit more, the best place to get some information is on our website. So that's at www.familyhq.com.au. There's a bit of a backstory about the app. There's a little bio for Liz and I. There's a couple of blogs that we've done recently about coughs and colds, about telehealth, and also with some screenshots of what the app's going to look like so people can get a bit of a feel for that. There's an opportunity to register there as well if you're either keen to be involved in some testing or to be notified when it's ready for launch. So we've got already, um, I think, 260 parents who've been signed up to be early adopters, which is really exciting. We're also on Instagram, just at FamilyHQ. My work Insta is Dr. Sarah Gleason as well. So um, we'd love people to follow us on socials as well because obviously you can get a little bit, join us on that journey a little bit. And we've been updating people along the way along the way there, which has been fun trying to learn how to use all of those for the non-social media people. <laughs> been quite a learning experience for you, hasn't it? Oh my good oh my goodness. I just I've said and I think this is probably the experience of most founders and and startups that you think, oh my goodness, I can see so many points where people would just go, oh, it's all a bit too much work and it's all really hard. But thankfully, we don't usually feel like that at the same time. So we can gee each other up and keep going. You can help lift each other up. Definitely. But yes, I can see how people would just throw their hands up and go, look, this is, I don't really feel like we signed up for this. This is a lot of work. But anyway, um, we're really excited to have this, you know, have this product nearly ready. So it's incredibly exciting um, after 18 months working on it. Well, it'll be very uh, worthwhile, I'm sure, because even if it only saves a few kids' lives and prevents a few of those calls to the to the poisons hotline, mm. I know then that'll be um, definitely all your hard efforts and work made worthwhile because you're actually then advocating um, for that safe administration of, of medicine and then healthier kids and then probably less stressed parents as, as a result as well. Hopefully. That's our plan. So thank you so much, Sarah, for your time. It's been a very informative podcast. I know that I've certainly learned a lot and I've realized that I haven't yet signed up for the trial, which I've actually got to do. So congratulations on everything that you've achieved. You are definitely one busy working mama and definitely got a few more extra bows into that, into that belt now. So congratulations on everything you're achieving and uh, look forward to seeing the app, the app live in a few weeks time. Thanks so much, Karina. It's been really fun being here today. My pleasure. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Working Mama podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast catch-up. I invite you also to join the Working Mama community on Facebook and join in the conversation with other like-minded working mums. Please also feel free to contact me on any of the Working Mama social channels. Remember, Mama is M-U-M-M-A or website www.workingmama.com.au. I would appreciate you to share this podcast with friends and colleagues, especially those that are parents managing the juggle. And I would really appreciate if you had to take the time out to leave a review of the podcast. I'll be giving a shout out to select people that do so. So stay listening and you might be one of them. Thank you and see you next time. Have a great week. Thank you.